0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a difficult passage. And in order to do it justice, we have to take our time and set it in the mosaic of scripture. Scripture is not meant to be taken as a single piece of literature. We're not supposed to take just Joshua and read it in isolation. But we're supposed to let scripture, which is the very word of God, which is active and living, speak to it. And so as scripture being kind of like a mosaic, in order for us to fully understand it, right now we're focusing on like a very particular piece of it. We need to take a step back and look at the entire picture that scripture gives us. And then we can zoom back in and understand even the pieces of the mosaic that can appear at times to be ugly and rough and appreciate the beauty that it adds to the entirety of the canon. And this is sort of what we're going to do tonight. But first, we have to press in and deal with some of the uncomfortable things that Scripture gives to us. So as as we've been going throughout the book of Joshua particularly and the Bible generally... We keep bumping up against this idea of a corporate identity of Israel. And frankly, this kind of ruffles our feathers, doesn't it? Matt's talked about this several times before. We have this very individualistic and this very American idea of what it means to be human. And Joshua pushes up against that. This goes against the very heartbeat of who we are, right? I mean, we're not monsters. We'll take responsibility for our actions. If we leave tonight in the rain and the storm and we get into a car wreck, we'll, we'll be good Americans. We'll. We'll wait. We'll wait till the police get there, and we'll show our IDs and our registration, and heck, if it's our fault, we'll even pay the higher insurance premiums, right? We'll take responsibility for our actions. But there are certain parts, our secret sins, that we're going to say no. No one comes in here and messes with these. These belong to me. It's between me and the Lord. Don't put your finger here. This hurts too much. Leave me alone in this area. And we think that's okay. God may not like it. There are certain sins that he may not like, but he really doesn't bother that much with them, right? Well, if we look at the biblical picture, we realize that the Bible actually paints quite a different picture. So remember where we are. We're at Joshua 7, right? What has happened already in, verses, or in chapters 1 through 6? The people have just sacked Jericho. Right before the walls came tumbling down, Joshua warned the people of Israel and reminded them that they were not to take any of the spoils of Jericho for themselves. In chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, he explicitly says, But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." So then what happens? Then Israel goes in, and they have this great victory over Jericho. This seemingly impenetrable fortress falls beneath the people of Israel, and they're given a great victory. Finally, there's hope in the camp of Israel. Finally, things are looking up for them. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, and after seeing their parents suffer the consequences of their sin, this generation gets it right. They listen to the Lord, and they are given the promised land. It's a happy ending, right? Not quite. And just a few verses later we come upon some troubling news Achan has violated the very direct and very specific command he has taken some of the devoted things the things that were set aside for destruction and because of this the anger of the lord burns against israel verse one of our passage almost sets up like a shakespearean aside like we have these eight other verses that we're going to go through but it's this little aside setting up the picture of what's about to happen the people have specifically been told don't touch this stuff it's not for you And then Achan says, What's the big deal? I'll skim a little off the top. I'm not hurting anyone. It's just a little bit of gold. God has enough anyway. This is a victimless victimless crime. So Achan took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So that's setting the picture, that's setting the backdrop. We read into verses 2 through 9, and we see what else is going on. So Jericho has fallen but the rest of the promised land is still inhabited by other people. So Joshua sends out some scouts, and he finds out other areas that need to be cleaned out, right? And the scouts come back and they say, hey, there's this little kingdom of I. It's, they're, they're nothing. Like, we can just use two or 3,000 people, clean them up, and we'll be done before dinner time. It's nothing compared to Jericho. And if you notice what they don't say, they haven't given any glory to God for the... Uh, for their conquest of Jericho, and they haven't mentioned the Lord going before them for Ai. There's a little bit of pride arising already within Israel. And Joshua says, this is a good idea. Okay, send these 3,000 out. And then what happens? In verse 5, we read that the men of Ai killed about 36 of the men, that's the Israelites, and chased them before the gates as far as Sherevim and struck them down at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Talk about going from your mountaintop highs to your valley lows, right? Israel had just utterly destroyed Jericho and now they were defeated by this itty bitty kingdom. They had basically taken over Russia that was like armed with nukes and then fell to Iceland, which I don't think even has their own army. And Joshua is devastated. He tears his clothes in a show of despair and then he throws himself down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant and stays there all night. And in dust, he wonders, God, where are you? What happens? Would that we stayed by by the River Jordan. Would that we have just stayed there. Are we going to be destroyed now? What about your name? Who's going to glorify it? And that's where our passage ends. And so in order to get a better picture of this, we have to plow on a few more verses. So if you want to grab your pew Bible, feel free. We're going to go into verses 10 and 11 here. But the Lord ultimately says to Joshua, he responds to his plea, and he says, "'Get up. Why have you fallen on your face?' Israel has sinned. They have transgressed the covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. The issue is simple. Israel has sinned. They have broken their covenant with the Lord, and they have taken some of the things from Jericho that that they were specifically told not to take, and the Lord left their presence because of this. And verse 12 says that they themselves have become things devoted to destruction, and the Lord will not be with them until they rid themselves of the spoil that they have taken. Now, this is where we have to take a step back. If we really want to get at the heart of what is going on here, we have to take a step back and we have to talk about what sin is. Why was it a big deal for Achan to skim some of this gold off the top? Why did the Lord burn against all of Israel for this? Is he just a fickle God? Is he an angry old man who just, when he doesn't get his way, is he, is he the God of Richard Dawkins that Matt talked about before? Is he upset about this and we just have to like, satisfy him because he's really fickle and angry? We really have to think about sin. So we're going to take a step back now. So what exactly is sin? In the West, specifically, we often refer to sin in these kind of legal terms. We view, like, it being an infraction against some sort of impersonal law. It's like speeding, you know? You go 60 in a 50, and, like, yeah, you have to pay a ticket for it, but, I mean, why would anyone get offended when cops get upset? I mean, come on, dude, I didn't do anything against you. Like, give me the ticket, let's move on here. It's not that big of a deal. Unless, of course, you, like, get into a wreck and kill someone, but per- per- like, that aside, it's not a big deal. And it's true, the Bible does present the law and sin in, in somewhat of illegal terms, but it doesn't stop at that. If we, view, if we view sin only through that framework, things aren't going to end well, and we're going to end up misinterpreting the Bible. In John 1-4, we read that in him, that's Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. And then later in the same gospel in John 17, right before Jesus is about to go to the cross, Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what Christ has just said here is life, eternal life. What we think of as heaven is not a place. It's not the celestial city that's just like, it's not the good place, as great of a show as that is. It's not this like eternal paradise where we can just have as much weird flavored yogurt as we want. It is to have a relationship with the triune God. And so with that in mind, let's look at Genesis 2:15 through 17, the original command in the garden. What does it say? The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice what the Lord doesn't say. He doesn't say, in the day that you eat of it, I'm going to kill you. He says that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why? Because sin is to break relationship with God. Sin is to separate ourselves from the source of life. It's as if like a scuba diver going deep into the water would all of a sudden just decide, I'm going to take out a knife and cut the hose to my regulator. There's, there's, you've cut yourself off from your sustenance. You're not going to survive down there. And that's essentially what we did in the garden. Sin has much less to do with breaking arbitrary rules and much more to do with breaking fellowship with the triune God. Sin is something that drastically affects the very fabric of our reality, the very fabric of the way the world is supposed to be. Because all of creation, whether it knows it or not, relies on God for its existence and sin is quite literally a life or death situation. So this illustration might be helpful for understanding the irrationality of sin and how it doesn't make sense like to be a scuba diver and try to like, take off your regulator and, and cut hoses and things like that, but it doesn't quite encapsulate the, the communal nature of sin. And so we need, to, we need to delve into that a little bit. Bear with me, I promise we're going to get back to our passage. So something that a lot of you probably don't know about me, before I came up to Birmingham for seminary, I was actually very close to becoming a police officer in Orlando, Florida. I... Um, I actually graduated the, uh, the academy in 2014. And uh, for a myriad of reasons, that didn't work out, and I came up here for seminary. But during that time, there were a lot of rules and tedious regulations that were placed on us, especially during our physical training. Some of my favorite were, were that like, when we were in the middle of PT, if we got really exhausted to the point that we felt like we were throwing up, we couldn't throw up on the mats. That was against the rules. And if we had to throw up, we had to ask permission to leave the mats before we could actually throw up. And so there was one guy that almost didn't make it and ended up, I think, just swallowing it. And yeah, it was pretty gross. Um, <laughs> but another one of those rules having to do with our uniforms was uh, we had to have like, this ugly gray T-shirt and these cargo shorts, and we had to have that tucked in, and then we had to have our tennis shoes, and then we had to have white ankle socks. And I had already been running recreationally for a while and realized that just white cotton socks give you blisters after a while, and it's really painful. And so some friends of mine had gotten these uh, orange and black running socks that were a synthetic fiber and were thicker, and you could run for miles and miles, and it wouldn't bother your foot at all. So one day I got into my mind like, hey, no one looks at your feet. I'm going to put these socks on, and PT's going to be a lot better today. And I got away with it for a day and another day. And then one day, as PT was beginning, I heard our instructors, our instructors start to kind of whisper amongst themselves, and all of a sudden we got screamed at and everyone was told to drop down in a push-up position until we figured out what was wrong and who was, uh, who was at fault here, and it quickly fell to me that people realized I was wearing the wrong color socks. So everyone had to start doing push-ups while I had to run into the locker room and change my socks. I came back, and then my squad leader and I both had to do 40 push-ups while everyone else held push-up position, and then I was punished further the next day. It really sucked. Because of my sin, everyone suffered. And that's kind of an illustration of what the communal, the communal aspect of sin does, right? And the reason these things were done was not just because our instructors were sadistic, which they very much were, it was because <laughs> policing, you have to be self-sacrificing. You can't be worried about number one in order to actually be a good cop. Things can very quickly go south when you're out on the street. And if you're worried about yourself and a situation arises, you may not be properly equipped to help someone else, and you very much could cause cause the loss of a life of another officer or another civilian. So again, this is a picture of our sin. It is a prideful disease that is highly contagious, even those small sins that no one knows about, even those secret pet sins, the little gossip here, the contempt that we have in our hearts, the lust that we have for other people, the watching porn behind closed doors that we don't want to talk about, the stealing a little bit of gold from Jericho. It's not going to hurt anyone. It's a victimless victimless crime. All of these things, they're deadly, and they're not just deadly to ourselves, but they're deadly to others. So this is ultimately why the Lord is angry. He is angry because he is love, as John tells us in 1 John 1.8. He sees his creation the creation that he deemed very good in Genesis one thirty one, and he sees it running headlong into death and destruction, and it breaks his heart, and he will not see it come to ruin. God is not wrathful because he is an angry old man. He is wrathful because he will not allow the contagion of sin that is infecting the world and dooming it to destruction. He won't allow that to go unchecked. Okay, I'm going to be persecuted for this illustration, but it's for the gospel. Do you remember that cinematic masterpiece from 2007? with uh, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man 3? Some of you may, some of you may not. Okay, it was an awful movie, it was universally denounced. But the, the, the premise, one of the like 14,000 premises that they tried to, to do in uh, Spider-Man 3 that led to its demise was they tried to introduce Spider-Man's arch rival, Venom. And so Venom is basically, there's this alien substance that comes from outer space and it's called a symbiote because in, in order for it to survive, it has to have a host. And so it ends up finding Spider-Man first, and then later Spider-Man's, uh, one of Spider-Man's rivals named Eddie Brock, and it attaches itself to him. And in doing that, it produces the supervillain named Venom. And Venom is basically like a dark version of Spider-Man. The symbiote takes over the host, and it allows them to have superpowers, but at a cost. It exasperates the, like, the anger and the malice that's in the person there. And so near the end of the movie, Spider-Man and Venom are fighting, And Peter Parker, Spider-Man, says to Eddie, Eddie, I understand, like, I felt this power. I know what you're feeling, but you have to take that suit off. It's going to destroy you. And in a really stupid, stupid line that they shouldn't have written, Eddie says, I like being bad. And then, like, the, the, they keep fighting each other and all this stuff. And so as they're fighting, they're in a construction site, and someone knocks over all these poles, and Peter begins to realize that the symbiote, the thing that's attached to Eddie, really doesn't like sound. And so he takes these poles, and he, like, nails them into ground, and he starts banging poles together and making a whole bunch of sound, and the symbiote starts to, like, react and come, and come like, off of Eddie. And it's, uh, Peter sees his moment at the time, and he shoots a web at Eddie, and he pulls him out of the symbiote, And then for reasons that are complicated in the story arc and I can't go into, there's a little grenade pumpkin bomb nearby and Peter picks that up and he throws it into the symbiote to destroy it. And Eddie, who has become so consumed with this lust for power, yells no and dives headlong back into the symbiote. The grenade goes off and it destroys both of them. Now this is not a perfect illustration at all, but I think it's helpful in thinking about the wrath of God. God's wrath is not aimed at his creation as such he loves it. It's aimed at sin and destruction and what it brings about. And he wants to pull us out of it like Spider-Man wanted to pull Eddie out of it. But if we refuse and if we remain in it, he can't let that go unchecked because it will destroy all of creation. And so if we choose to remain in that, we will be swallowed up in the wrath of God. Again, it is not a fickle anger. He is wrathful because he is loving and he wants to see his creation flourish. We read in 2 Peter 3:9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but he is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Again, God's delight is not in destruction. God is ultimately a surgeon who is removing painful tumors from the body of his beloved bride. He hates the tumors because it threatens that which he loves. And so this is the horror, this is, now we can zoom back in on Achan again, this is the horror of the sin of Achan, and this is why the judgment is so fierce. Because God's love is so passionate, he will not see his people and his creation destroy themselves. If we continue reading in chapter 7, we see that the Lord commands Joshua to ultimately find the person who has taken these things devoted to destruction, and that this person has to be destroyed by fire. Achan stands as a foil to Rahab. She saw the coming armies of Israel and she knew of the mighty works of the Lord. She had been the embodiment of everything that was wrong with Canaan and yet she repented. She saw as the Israelites were marching around Jericho that destruction was coming, but she was given an opportunity and she took it to rest in the mercy of the Lord. She was a true Israelite. But Achan... Achan, who had been with Israel from the beginning, who had heard the warnings not to touch the gold and silver set aside for destruction, who was an eyewitness to everything that the Lord had done against Jericho and for Israel, he still said, I don't care. It's just a little gold. What's the big deal? And because of him, the presence of the Lord was no longer with Israel. He, in effect, had made himself a Canaanite. Because of him, 36 of his brethren had died in the battle against the kingdom of Ai. And even seeing all of that, guess what? He doesn't repent. During all of this time, seeing the tragedy that befell Israel, he does not step forward and say, have mercy on me, God, for I am a sinner. He remains silent. And so if you look, and God still even gives him time in a way. If you look at chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord describes to Joshua how he's going to figure out, how, how he's going to reveal who the person is who stole this gold. He says, in the morning, so he's giving him like a full day, therefore you shall you shall be brought forward by your tribes. So the biggest part, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, the biggest section of Israel. And then from the tribes, he's going to separate the clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It's almost like there's this countdown to judgment, and Achan has to know why it's happening. He has to know that, he, that it's slowly narrowing in on him, and yet he remains silent. Just like Rahab, when she saw the Israelites circling Jericho, she knew judgment was coming, but she repented, and Achan remained silent. He says, like Eddie in Spider-Man, I like being bad. He doesn't care that his sin will destroy him and that it has already destroyed 36 of his brethren. He remains silent. Finally, Joshua confronts him, and he confesses. He acknowledges his sin against the Lord, but we don't read that he repents and begs God for his mercy. And in the end, he and his whole family are destroyed. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, your sin and my sin, it's serious. It is cosmic ramifications. There is no safe, secret sin that God just looks at and winks and says, humans being humans, am I right? Sin is a disease, and it's a threat to everything good. And left to ourselves, we will wallow in death and we will face destruction. But thanks be to God, there is hope in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has become sin on our behalf in order to destroy it, in order to trample death and hell and Satan beneath his feet, that we might be reconciled with God. He has entered into our reality of death, and he has conquered it so that we no longer have to experience it. He has risen from the grave, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and because of him, we can be reconciled. He offers us new life, renewed in him. Remember John 1, 4? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. This renewed life is offered to us for free. And so what's our response? Our response is to just just approach in faith and repentance. This is not about shaping up and being a good church-going person. This is not about doubling down on our sin and just trying to be better. This is about the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ in baptism and reconciling us to the Father. It is about Christ offering himself freely in our behalf that sin might be destroyed and then meeting us here in common bread and wine. The story of grace in the story of Achan is that God loves his creation enough to purge it from sin. And the grace is also that he is slow in doing it. And the grace is that ultimately in Christ he has taken it away and we can receive those benefits for free. And he gives us time for repentance. So now as we approach this table, let us recognize the atrocities that are our sins, and let us in humility and meekness confess them before God. Let us sincerely pray the prayer of humble access, knowing that we are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs beneath this table, and yet God has invited us as esteemed guests. And after we have been nourished by his body and blood, let us leave in joy, Eager to share our life with Christ, our life in Christ with those who need it as well. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.